Rap on BFBS with Kate Chabot. It's no-go for the procurement GOKO. The Defence Secretary explains why. French forces in the Central African Republic, are they making a difference? What are Putin's plans for the Arctic? And why a US military command centre will spend Christmas Eve tracking Santa's worldwide flight? He actually slows down for our fighter jets. I mean, he waves and over to our pilots and then he's off in the twinkle of an eye. This week, the government abandoned a key part of its plans to shake up defence procurement and save money on equipment. Instead of part privatising defence equipment and support, it will be turned into an arm's-length government trading entity with more freedom from Treasury rules. This morning, the Commons Defence Committee hauled in the Defence Secretary, Philip Hammond, to explain. Our reporter, James Hurst, has been listening to proceedings. What the Defence Secretary had wanted to do was turn defence equipment and support, DE&S as it's known, into a commercial company owned by the government but run by private contractors, hence this phrase we've heard, GOCO. But by the end of the bidding process, all but one consortium had pulled out. The idea was they would be rewarded only if they saved money on buying and maintaining military equipment. It seems most thought the risks on that return didn't justify the costs of going into the job. The competition cost the MOD almost £7.5 million. Labour MP John Woodcock suggested to Mr Hammond that he should have seen this coming. By saying in your statement this week, Secretary of State, that you uh, you need to develop more robust and more, more robust baseline, are you not admitting that this whole process lasting for the duration that it did, you ran without sufficient information to bring to fruition? And do you regret that? No, I think... Um, I, I mean, first of all, uh, we... Clearly, we received one bid from an extremely credible bidder um, who did feel that there was sufficient information and that the risk around any uncertainty in the information was uh, manageable. So I think, and yet you've so, discounted so I think we've that, got to be clear. You've well, discounted that by, by saying that you don't think there were, that the information needs to be more robust. Uh, no, I, I, th- I believe that the information must, in the future, be more robust. Yeah. I mean, it's clear part of our plan for DENS, which, in whichever configuration it goes forward, that it needs to develop more robust uh, uh, and more granular management information. Mr Hammond went on to say what the abandoned GOCO competition had helped them do was get more freedom from things like civil service recruitment rules and pay structures. That, he says, will improve things because he sees the big problem as a lack of private sector experience. He thinks that's going to make it easier to recruit the experience in. Sat next to him this morning and agreeing with him, the man who will be running this new DE&S Plus, as it's known, the current Chief of Defence Materiel, Bernard Gray. If you took a key issue like the airworthiness issue... We were short of about 100 airworthiness engineers a year ago, before we started this process. We have recruited people, but as Secretary of State says, in a buoyant civil market, we are still short of about 100 uh, airworthiness engineers today, because although we have recruited people, we lose people to the outside world as well. So we have a continuing problem. I don't recognise the sort of catastrophic cliff edge 
what I recognise is a chronic condition which has existed for a long period of time, which makes it harder to do our job. Labour, not surprisingly, have painted the whole episode as a U-turn. This, the forthright verdict from former Defence Procurement Minister Lord Davies. Well, it's an unbelievable shambles. I mean, it's an inconceivable shambles. This government says they've been in power. They've been running down our defence capability. They've been saying that they want to hand over defence procurement to a private sector company. Defence procurement is core defence business, and it can't simply be handed over to the private sector. But for the Defence Secretary, the GOKO idea is not dead in the water, as some have portrayed it. Mr Hammond is hoping that once they've improved DE and S+, and that it's giving better financial information, they could try the part privatisation again. James Hurst there. Now our defence analyst, sorry, Christopher Lee has been listening to all of that. Christopher, will the government ever get this right? Only in the words of uh, the Defence Secretary, now get this, granular information. Now, if you've got a defence secretary and a secretariat and a bureaucracy wandering around the fourth floor of the defence ministry muttering to themselves, granular information, is that the right condition beginning something like this right? Listen to what Bernard Gray says. It's been a chronic condition and it's existed for a long time. It's existed since 1983 when, when the then defence secretary, Michael Heseltine, mm. recognised it, brought in Peter Levine, who was running Marks and Spencers or something at the time, and said, look, can we fix it? That was 83. Now, do the, do the arithmetic. It still ain't fixed. No, there isn't much wrong with it, in fact, except this uh, inability to get the right information to the right people so that you can bring stuff in on cost and on time. And the solution D, E and S plus. Yes, D, E and S plus will only do it if they sort out what is the financial implication for the whole thing. Now, you go to a man and you say, you've got a company, you do the procurement for us, will you do that? And he says, yeah, of course I will, because it's the biggest money-making contract in the whole country. And he said, ah, but if you don't bring it in under budget almost, you don't get paid properly. You don't get paid as much as you want to. So what, in these troubled times, you simply walk away because the Defence Ministry, when, they drew, when the other company does what's called uh, uh, due diligence cannot get the figures right they can't be told what they're expected to spend on what it's going to be, the spend is going to be on because the defense ministry itself doesn't know what it's doing all right christmas stay with us on the forces station bfbs With withdrawal from Afghanistan now firmly within reach, you could be forgiven for thinking that British troops in Helmand are focused on packing up and getting out. But although some troops are spending more time within the wire, patrols are still going on. Earlier this week, BFBS reporter Ali Gibson went to Lashkar Durai, the furthest outpost in Task Force Helmand, with a company from the 3rd Battalion, the Mercian Regiment, in their warrior armoured vehicles. And we can talk to Ali now, who's in our studio in Camp Bastion. Ali, what have they been doing? Well, since August, the Armoured Infantry Company have been driving the Warrior Armoured Vehicles out of Lashkagar Durai. They're protecting the key routes which join East and West Helmand. And if you haven't seen them, the Warrior is a really huge, imposing armoured vehicle. It's actually got quite a presence. 
So the Mercians are using them as a deterrent, wedging themselves between the communities that are protected by the Afghan National Security Forces and areas where they know that the insurgents are operating, such as Kamparak and Kakaran. There's still um, quite an IED threat here, though, and the soldiers have to continually perform checks to keep themselves safe. The crews that I followed, um, they go out on patrol for days at a time, driving across the desert. They're supporting the ANSF operations by providing a kind of show of force. You know, look, we're here, we're still operating. ISAF are still helping the Afghan National Security Forces. The OC of um, A Company 3 Mercian is uh, Major Neil Kelly. It's a fantastic vehicle, uh, really, really good. It gives you fantastic protection. It's got really good firepower, uh, but the real key to it is it's got really good manoeuvrability, uh, and therefore we can go to areas that most other vehicles can't go to, uh, and therefore the insurgents can't target us because they simply can't get to where we're going to. And Ali, how much longer are these patrols likely to continue for? Well, at the moment, we aren't actually sure what the future is for Warrior in Afghanistan because so much of it is going to depend on the speed of the drawdown and how quickly all those external bases that are outside of Camp Bastion are closed down. But the soldiers serving with the Warrior Company say its role has really changed. Lance Corporals Peter Murphy and Carl Collins spoke to me and they were last in Helmand on Op Herrick 14. There's a lot more kinetic last time. There's a lot more fighting, close engagements with the insurgents. There's a lot more foot patrolling. This time round, uh, it's very different. There's, there's less engagements with the insurgents. They've improved a hell of a lot and it's making us feel a lot more comfortable knowing that we haven't got to go into compounds and things like that. They can fend for themselves now. Ali, this is your second stint as a reporter in Afghanistan. Briefly, what changes have you noticed since your last visit? I think there's definitely a different mood here this time around and a lot of that is about Task Force Helmand having a much smaller footprint than last year. Um, in 2012, when I was here, there are about 40 patrol bases um, or forward operating bases across Helmand. Now we're down to single figures and I think case it probably also makes a difference that Op Herrick 19 is the longest tour that they've had of Afghanistan so far. Many of these troops are doing nine months away from their families so I think everyone here is just trying to sort of keep their heads down and get on with the job at hand. I'd say drawdown is definitely gathering pace but with a year left to go there's still quite a lot to be done. All right Ali Gibson in Cambastian thanks very much. Um, important this work goes on what would the effect be um, when it stops do you think? Well, it's twofold. One, you don't you don't let up. You, if you let up, you get killed. Simple as that, right? Or you risk getting killed. Um, you, you risk fouling up a much bigger operation. When the UK pulls out from this sort of patrol, from being actually hands-on helping what the Afghan security forces uh, are doing, then obviously it really it, it is how effective the Afghan security force is. Not, do you, do you not get, with the do, guys. Do you get a sense that, that there is a plan in place for, for replacing them in some way by the Afghan forces? They have to, because there's nobody else to do it. But we see where the weakness is, and it will remain for a long time, the Afghan security forces don't have the command and control systems that are necessary. They don't have the middle management, uh, you know, company commander, CEO and CEO levels at all. And Taliban, and we're, we're, you know, we're not in the summer fighting uh, season so easily now. When Taliban return in numbers, then that'll be the great test. And the test won't be on the British by then because in theory, in theory, they will be out of it. It'll be on the Afghans who are supposed to be looking after their own country. 
All right, Christmas Day with us. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, protests continue in Kiev, but could Ukraine be about to sign a trade deal with the EU? And... NORAD Santa Cams have just spotted Santa flying over the United Kingdom. <laughs> this is BFBS. Sit rep. The RAF has delivered more military equipment to French forces in the Central African Republic. The MOD says the C-17 aircraft has flown in French trucks and supplies. It's the second of three such flights from RAF Bryce Norton to the capital, Bongi. Earlier this week, two French soldiers were killed in fighting there. Paul Melly is an associate fellow at Chatham House and an expert on the former French colonies in Africa. Hello, Paul. Um, these extra French troops have been there for nearly a week now. Are they making any difference? They're making a difference in two respects. They've helped, and I think one can't say more than that at this stage, but they have helped to curb the violence on the streets because the CAR was sliding very rapidly towards a potentially ferocious intercommunal conflict uh, with Christian and Muslim militias uh, persecuting populations on both sides of, of a religious divide that wasn't really... Um, significant before but in the heated climate of the last few months has become important and secondly they've started to try to disarm the uh, militias particularly the Seleka former rebels who installed the present uh, transitional president in March when they overthrew the previous head of state but it's a difficult task because the Seleka fighters um, They've, they've quite often handed over their arms, but they're now worried that they'll be exposed to vengeance attacks by the population of Bagi, which is mainly Christian and is very angry about the way the Seleka fighters have behaved over the last um, few months in occupying the city. And it's in a difficult situation. And in terms of the French intervention, is it simply a case of a sense of responsibility by, on the part of President Hollande because of the colonial past? It's not really related to the colonial past, except in the sense that Central African Republic remains a country with which France has very close links. And culturally, obviously, it's a Francophone country. It's in the sort of orbit of influence of the French. But this is very different from the old post-colonial interventions where the French got involved in order to shape the domestic politics. This was more of a, what you might call a sort of humanitarian military intervention, rather akin to what the British did in Sierra Leone in the late 90s, to stop um, an already very violent civil conflict getting even worse, with even worse consequences for civilians, and to provide a breathing space for the reinforcement of the existing African peacekeeping force, which was very small, but is now being expanded to 6,000 soldiers. And because the French obviously have heavy equipment, armoured vehicles, uh, they could, they've been flying um, sorties by uh, Rafale uh, strike fighters over Bangui to intimidate the militia fighters. They've got the sort of kit, if you like, that can possibly help to calm things down in a way that uh, the lesser lesser well-equipped uh, African forces couldn't on their own. How long do you think France could be involved in this? Well, they've talked about a short period and dropped hints about a target date of six months, but I suspect that they will probably monitor quite carefully the situation and uh, play it for as long as is necessary. 
the African Union has got a political transition plan with a target date of elections in early 2015. And because the French already had a small detachment of soldiers in the country, even before this crisis, they could sort of adjust manpower down slowly without making the symbolic step of total withdrawal over quite a long period if they needed to. Um, that's what they've done in Mali, for example, where they've dropped any fixed timetable for withdrawal and just gradually reduced uh, troop strength as conditions allowed. And I suspect they will do the same in the CAR if they possibly can. All right, Paul Melly from Chatham House, thank you very much for your time today. Now, all this week in Ukraine, thousands of anti-government protesters have confronted riot police in the capital, Kiev's independent square. The protest centres on a decision by President Viktor Yanukovych to cancel a trade deal with the EU, apparently on instruction from Russian President Putin. But it now looks like he might have changed his mind. EU foreign policy chief Catherine Ashton has told reporters he will sign after all. But Christopher... um, Say the name for me, will you? Yanukovych. Yeah, I knew you'd be able to do it. Uh, <laughs> the first time you say these things, sometimes it just doesn't come out, does it? Um, yeah. uh, was she right uh, in this way? Uh, let's put this will in some sign? background. We've got uh, Yanukovych, who is the president, who <clears throat> his family is perhaps one of the more corrupt families in the whole of uh, the former Eastern Bloc. And they run everything except the sweet factories, and that's significant. They went to the EU and said, listen, we need about 27 billion euros uh, to sign some trade deals. Moscow said, you can't do that because that means that you will move away from our Eurasian policy and therefore you will damage your own people. Um, We have Yanukovych, who wants to go along with uh, President Putin in in Russia and feels great pressure to do so, and he is pressurised to do so. Along comes the EU... And um, and they say, well, look, OK, perhaps we can do some deals on this 27 billion euros. You may not get it straight away, but that is the way forward for you because you can do trade with us uh, and it's better for the people of, uh, of, of the Ukraine. In the background to this is John Kerry, uh, the American Secretary of State, what we would call the foreign minister. He's talking about the police operation of putting down the rioters in ironically named Independent Square um, as, as being disgusting. And they're talking about the, the Americans maybe taking some action over it. The United Kingdom is now saying the same thing. This is a very big thing because it's connected with this whole <clears throat> Putin thing yeah, of not losing control. Just tell us a little bit about the position of Putin in all of this. Putin is losing control over so much of his former territories and, and, and influence and needs to maintain it. He's actually doing things now which was unthinkable, say, just a couple of years ago. For example, he's closed down the Vosti, the great news agency, which didn't always report what he wanted them to report and has started up one of his own. He's telling the, his own people, in uh, his military people, uh, listen, we've got to look as if we're strong and we've got to look as strong where there are great facilities and also great sort of pro- prosperities. In other words, raw materials perhaps to be found. Start up a new military operation uh, over the Arctic, for example. This is Putin really on a, a strongman role and the Ukraine is part of it. The Americans, NATO and, Uran- uh, uh, and uh, Europe uh, in general is, is actually challenging his authority. That's the one thing that Putin can't stand, his authority to be challenged at all. 
Christopher Stay with us. Um, it's been a week since the news broke of the death of the first black president of South Africa, Nelson Mandela. On Tuesday, world leaders gathered in a football stadium in Soweto to pay their respects at a memorial service. Among them were a group of independent global leaders brought together by Mandela. They're called the Elders, and members include Kofi Annan, Jimmy Carter, Lakta Brahimi and Mary Robinson. Sylvain Vivil is the group spokesman and joins us now. Sylvain, uh, hello, good to speak to you today. Who are the Elders and what do they do? So it, it, it's a group of, of retired leaders that were, uh, as you said, brought together by Nelson Mandela in 2007. You know that the original idea behind the elders is that uh, an African village, as their African uh, elders, where you that you go and see and consult, you use their wisdom and experience to try to solve conflicts. And the idea that was brought to Nelson Mandela uh, by actually the singer Peter Gabriel and the entrepreneur Richard Branson is that uh, the same way as the African village, as uh, it's, uh, the African uh, elders, our global village, the global village that we live in, should have their global elders. That was the original idea in 2007 when Nelson Mandela, along with his wife, Grace Michelle, and with his friend Archbishop Desmond Tutu, brought together this group of extraordinary leaders. You mentioned some of them, Kofi Annan, Jimmy Carter, Mary Robinson. Uh, they represent um, all the continents on Earth. But what's interesting is that it's a small group of 11 or 12 individuals that no longer hold office, and uh, so they're not, they're, they're not seeking re-elections. They're they, uh, not tied to any vested interest. And they're supposed to be able to speak freely truth to power. The mandate that Nelson Mandela gave them in 2007 was, uh, if I can quote what he said when he launched the group in 2007, the elders will support courage where there is fear, foster agreement where there is conflict, and inspire hope where there is despair. So what have, have they done ex exactly? So you're, you're, that, that's a very interesting question because between the, uh, the very aspirational idea and what they are doing on the ground, uh, it's an idea that is not that easy to, to make into practice. Um, as a matter of fact, they act both uh, by quiet diplomacy using their network, their influence to try to uh, to bridge gaps between between politicians, so there's a lot of activity around peace building. Uh, they they are not an, they do not have an official mandate as uh, as mediators, but they give a little push when they see they can make a difference. A concrete example: uh, last year, uh, 2012, uh, Sudan and South Sudan were on the brink of resuming war. Uh, a few months after the country of South Sudan was, was created and separated from, from the rest of Sudan. Jimmy Carter and Lakdar Brahimi went to see uh, President Bashir okay. in Khartoum that nobody else uh, uh, in, in the West uh, met because he's indicted by the International Criminal Court for alleged war crimes related to Darfur. Mm -hmm. And they went to tell him, uh, you have to live with South Sudan and uh, the geography and history is such that you have to speak to your neighbors. A few months later, right. another delegation led by Archbishop Tutu went okay. to South Sudan. I'm not saying that the elders avoided the resumption of the war, but that's an example of how they are trying to use their influence and wisdom to try to solve conflict. All right, Sylvain Beville, thank you very much. Sylvain Beville, spokesman for the elders. Thanks for joining us. 
With less than two weeks to go until Christmas, we thought we'd find out how one American military establishment helps Father Christmas during his journey around the world. Every Christmas Eve, millions of children use a website set up by the North American Aerospace Defence Command, or NORAD, to track Father Christmas as he delivers his presents. Well, a little earlier I spoke to Stacey Knotts, the coordinator for NORAD Tracks Santa. I asked her how it all started. Well, you know, it was really just an accident. Back in 1955, a local department store here in Colorado Springs, Colorado, ran an ad for kids to call and talk to Santa, and they had a phone number there, but they misprinted the number, and it actually went to the command center for the predecessor of NORAD, which is the um, the Continental Defense Command, and it went to the dreaded red phone. And uh, this phone was usually used... Uh, when the President of the United States or the Secretary of Defense or Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, somebody like that was calling because there was an emergency. But instead, on this night, on December 24th in 1955, the phone rang, and the colonel on duty that night was Colonel Shelp, and he answered the phone and was expecting one of these very important people, but instead it was a little girl asking if he was Santa. You know, after figuring out what was going on and that there had been a misprint in the ad, he told the little girl he wasn't Santa, but that he would be happy to check his radar and see where Santa was at. And he directed the rest of the crew for the whole rest of the night to do the same for any kids who called in. And from there, the tradition was born. And we have been doing it every year since. And uh, NORAD was established in 1958, just a few years later. And, and, and we have continued that tradition. And now we're at 58 years. Congratulations. And has Santa actually been to visit your headquarters? He has. He has. Actually, he was here just a few months ago, and he came and we gave him a briefing on how we would be tracking him that night with our our military radars and satellites and fighter aircraft, and and he is familiar with that. He's seen us several times before, and and he knows we we track him every year. But, yeah, he came here to our headquarters, and uh, it was a great day, great visit with him. Can you disclose any information about the journey he might be taking this year? Well, you know, only Santa knows his route. Um, And he always takes a little bit different one. It just kind of depends, you know, on the weather and what's happening for that night. And then, you know, additionally, Santa doesn't stop at your house if you're not in bed and asleep. So, you know, sometimes he has to reroute around because some of those little kids sometimes are trying to stay up and and take a peek. And he, he always knows. He always knows. Just interested to know how many calls and emails Nora gets about Santa over the festive period. Oh, wow. Well, our operations center, which has over 1,200 volunteers who will be working and taking calls on December 24th, um, took over 114,000 phone calls last year. We received over 9,000 emails. Our website, which is www.noradsanta.org, took, uh, had over 22 million unique visitors last year. So what do you find more challenging, tracking Santa or doing homeland defense? <laughs> well, you know, certainly both have their challenges, um, but both very rewarding. You know, the, the men and women here at NORAD, we know that for many families, that tracking Santa with NORAD has become part of their holiday traditions. And so we know that's a big responsibility and an honor for us. And we're very proud to track Santa every year on December 24th. So that's a big job. So that's that's very challenging. And then, of course, Homeland Defense the rest of the year is, is our, our main job. But uh, But I think they're both very, very important. 
I suppose that the worst case scenario for you guys would be uh, mistaking Santa's sleigh for some kind of hostile incoming missile. <laughs> well, that that would be bad, but uh, you know, Santa coordinates with us pretty well that we're able to tell when it's it's him coming through. And you know, uh, funny enough, he flies faster than anything we have uh, on this, uh, you know, within our military resources. Uh, in fact, he flies faster than Starlight. So when uh, when he goes through North America, he actually slows down for our fighter jets to come up and, and tip their wings to him and wave to him, and he waves and over to our pilots, and then he's off in the twinkle of an eye. That was Stacy Knott from NORAD Track Santa. Well, sitting opposite me, he's not Santa, but he has worked at NORAD, Christopher, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, don't believe that. Well, yeah, a few years ago, I was an attachment there, and, and most of the things I was doing was uh, is, it was tracking space junk, about 7,000 uh, pieces of space junk. <laughs> I saw not one bit of space junk in a bobble hat being pulled by six reindeer. But I tell you something, a British vicar is in trouble for telling children uh, this week in London that Santa does not exist. Of course he exists. Get in touch with Nora and they'll put him in touch. <laughs> um, other business this week, uh, news on Syria, Christopher. Yeah, quite serious news on Syria. Uh, it seems a lot of the equipment the United Kingdom the United States has been sending to the Syrian rebels has been getting ha in the hands of the Islamists. In fact, they've stolen it and been using against our guys. In fact, to, to such an extent that the general who's commanding the uh, the rebels doesn't have anybody to command. That's serious. Briefly, NATO Secretary-General is staying on. NATO Secretary-General is staying on until next September, September for the NATO summit. And we... We'll be talking to him on Monday. He'll be on the programme next week. Um, and that is all we have time for this week. And my thanks to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again to this week's programme on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Sports and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2.